Hey everyone, we are back for season six of the Holistic Pharmacy Podcast. I'm your host, Marina Buxov, a functional medicine pharmacist and holistic herbal educator. I'll be sharing inspiring stories of my guests who have shifted into holistic modalities, both personally and professionally. My co-host, Dr. Jenna Carmichael, will be joining me to lead the Journal Club episodes to share an evidence-based approach to holistic and herbal medicine. I'm so glad you're here and hope you enjoy the show. Hi, my dear listeners. I am thrilled to introduce my next guest because we talk about the starkly opposing ideologies between Western and Eastern medicine in the context of infant movement development and beyond. Cara Angela Liguori is a somatic practitioner, infant developmental movement educator, and dream guide whose creative healing journey began with dance and music. She's currently earning a master's degree in clinical mental health counseling. In her one-on-one practice, Cara uses integrative touch, somatics, and guided meditations to support her client's body-mind-spirit integration. For infants and their caregivers, Cara provides education and skill building, for cultivating secure attachment skills and resilient movement and nervous system development through embodied observation, co-regulation, and handling techniques. In all her work, she facilitates connections with the underlying pathways of support that lead people to deepened relationships with themselves and others. Kara's practice is client-centered, trauma-informed, and process-oriented. She's a certified practitioner of zero balancing, SLN massage, somatic movement education for adults and infants via the School for Body-Mind Centering and Pilates. Please tune into this fascinating episode. I'd love to hear what you thought in the comments below. Hi, everyone. I have a very special episode featuring a special guest today on the Holistic Pharmacy Podcast. Her name is Cara Liguori, and she is a somatic practitioner. She works with touch and movement with both adults and infants. So I am super excited. Uh, I have seen Cara myself when she was doing zero movement uh, back in the day. I don't know if you still do that, but I would love to just hear from you about your background and how you got into this line of work. And of course, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Marina. Um, Let's see. So my pathway to this work has been one of flow and meandering. I started off as a dancer. So that's how I got involved in movement. I performed professionally for about 10 years in the modern dance scene in New York City which eventually led me to studying anatomy. I got really fascinated with the human body and I studied anatomy from a somatic perspective. So I also became a Pilates practitioner. So I was teaching people Pilates, learning about the experience of the body. And from there, I started to study body work and the specific modality I studied was zero balancing. You said zero movement, but it's called zero balancing. And that's how you and I first met. Um, Zero balancing is a blend of osteopathic manipulations and acupressure. Um, It's really a body-mind modality and it um, enhances people's alignment with how they're feeling spiritually and emotionally with what's expressing in their body. So I've been practicing that since 2017 um, and at the same time continuing my study of somatic movement education through a field of study called body-mind centering, where we learn all about the different systems of the body. So the bones, the muscles, the fascia, the fluids, the endocrine system, and on and on. And in that, I've, I've learned a lot about development and infants, and that has been the source of my trajectory of learning how to work with infants and new families through specifically somatic touch and handling skills, um, as well as all of the specificity of observation that comes from knowing so much about movement and the human body. Um, so that's kind of how what's landed me to where I am today. And I I guess it might also be worth mentioning that I'm currently studying a master's for a master's degree in clinical mental health counseling. So my work with infants and new parents eventually will live in that realm of being able to be a, a counseling practice as well. 
Wow, that's so fascinating that there's just so many different ways that we get into these specific fields of both study and practice and how you're coming to it from a dancer movement and then studying anatomy, physiology, and then also the body-mind connection. And I'm coming to it, for example, from a pharmacology background, but we still had to study the body and, of course, the mind, even though a lot of times they're separated in allopathic medicine. Um, So it's so interesting how all of these fields intersect. And I also have a history as a dancer, uh, so I definitely relate to that. And I love the embodiment and somatic work in recent years that has been really important to me to integrate. So can you tell us a little bit about the zero balancing versus craniosacral and versus like other similar modalities, perhaps for people that aren't as familiar? Sure, I can do my best to try to compare it to those other modalities that I'm not an expert in. But um, I think one way, first of all, I would say that they're they're related they're kind of like sister therapies in the sense that they do have similar approaches to the unity of body and mind um so that's that Um, but then they go in to the touch experience accessing different systems so zero balancing is working primarily with the skeletal system so bone tissue and joints and the intersection of how energy flows through the bone tissues and the joints and energy in this sense is not necessarily some kind of esoteric concept. It's actually like the energy field of gravity and how our bones conduct gravity through the joints and whether the tissue is allowing the gravity to flow through in the most optimal way. Um, Craniosacral therapy is working with the CFS, cranio, oh, wait, (laughs) let me make sure I'm saying it. Yeah, the craniosacral fluid, CSF, (laughs) craniosacral fluid, and the mechanism that contains the craniosacral fluid, right? So the, the brain is awash in craniosacral fluid, as is the spinal cord. So craniosacral therapy is an integrative therapy that has to do with the flow of the craniosacral fluid through that mechanism, whereas zero balancing is an integrative body-mind therapy that has to do with the flow of gravity through the skeletal tissue and the joints. So another way that they're similar is that they're integrative, meaning a practitioner is not going to see a person who's saying they have pain in their shoulder and only work on the shoulder. The practitioner is going to look at the whole body system and the flow within the system and the relatedness within the system to see how that pain in the shoulder might have manifested and what relationships they need to bring back in order to support that part of the body so that it has more ease and connectedness. And they just do it through different body systems. The same would be true of um, Rolfing, right? That's integrated fascial work. So those practitioners go in through the connective tissue of the body. Yeah, I always thought that CSF stood for cerebrospinal fluid. So is that the same thing? Like around? I'm saying the wrong thing. Yes, cerebrospinal fluid. Yes. So does it only then have to do with innervated tissue, or is it also just organs and? like the parietal tissue surrounding the organs and things like that? How deep does the waters and the fluids of our bodies, you know, go as far as having to be nervous tissue or not? Um, Again, I'm not a craniosacral therapist, so I don't know for sure. What I do know is that there are different approaches to craniosacral therapy. And I believe that there are some that are working very specifically with the cerebrospinal fluid flow as it's contained within the nervous, the central nervous system. However, there is research, as far as I'm aware, that shows that the cerebrospinal fluid actually does permeate all of the tissues of the body. So I believe there are other approaches to craniosacral therapy 
where the practitioners are not so bound to the CNS structures and are kind of working in a more full body capacity where they are, again, I'm not sure if my language is accurate to describe that, but where they may be either following or tracking or just being with the flow of cerebrospinal fluid throughout the entire body and all of the tissues. Yeah, well, thank you for shedding some perspective on that. And I'm also curious, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but I'm always, you know, like in between these worlds of like allopathic medicine and then more holistic medicine. So where does the somatic movement techniques and anything from working on fascia to the CSF to, you know, just touch, where does it land as far as like being recognized as an official form of therapy? It's not a simple answer. I'm going to try to tease it out as specifically as I can. First, I would say that there's a little bit of a distinction between somatic movement therapies and touch therapies or touch modalities that are talked about as somatic, but are a little bit more um, active on the part of the practitioner in terms of manipulating the body whereas the somatic movement therapies are more focused on um, occasionally touch, but touch that supports a person in moving to find new pathways rather than the practitioner kind of like doing things to the person's body. So there's first, there's that distinction. And in terms of where they fall with um, regard to allopathic medicine, like alternative practices, it's kind of different. Um, and I would say that different modalities are on different pathways and courses to where they're sitting with that, depending on how much funding they've had to have research done so that they can prove that their practice is evidence-based or the background of the founding person who developed the technique. Like for example, um, Zero Balancing and Rolfing, the founders of Zero Balancing and Rolfing, Frederick Smith and Ida Rolf were contemporaries of each other. And uh, Rolfing is much more well known in terms of mainstream practices. And uh, some people say that that has to do with the fact that the, the founder of Rolfing doesn't talk about the energetic components of that practice in the traditional way that it's taught, whereas zero balancing does. And so that conversation around energy is maybe always going to limit its popularity and its acceptance in the allopathic world. Um, so yeah, where these things sit can vary depending on the modality. Something I would say is that in the past 15 years, um, research advancing in the field of neuroscience is just showing um, that so many of these modalities kind of uh, intersect with the way our brain actually works. So I th I, I'm hopeful that in the future, alternative medicine won't be considered so alternative anymore. It's just a matter of science and evidence-based practice sort of catching up to practices, um, practices that were born of more of a sensory experience and an internal knowing. And I, I also want to name that this like what I'm saying also applies to all kinds of indigenous wisdom about the body that comes from a more embodied way of knowing that now later Western scientific framework is saying, oh, actually we can prove that that's working now, that we can prove the mechanism of how that's working now. But for so long, people have been practicing these things without it needing to be proven. They just they knew it came from a sense of human to human, touch to touch, right? Ma um, matching like with our, what they now call mirror neurons. Like we can meet another person's experience and hold space for uh, processes to resolve in the body. Um, so yeah, I, I hope that's 
articulate enough. That's a long-winded answer. I love that perspective because I'm always saying, you know, science is just playing catch up and we can observe a natural phenomenon and not know how it's happening or why it's happening. And we can make up theories about it, you know, that ranges from spiritual to scientific. But at the end of the day, if it's true, it's true. So what gets us on board to accepting it as truth, if we need to know the mechanism, if we can just trust, um, but the truth of the matter won't change. So um, I, I totally agree. I was just wondering too, when you were mentioning, you know, movement in uh, not the esoteric way, but actual, you know, gravity and all of that. I wonder if that is part of how, let's say the chi, right? The life force, the vital energy has been described too as this energetic life and vital force, but maybe it does have like the scientific components behind it. And because you mentioned somatic, I'm sorry, zero balancing um, involves some acupressure, you know, it kind of is interrelated, it seems like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, there is definitely an awareness on the practitioner's part of the meridian system and how it's moving through the body. And I can't say with any kind of authority that that has anything to do with gravity because the meridian system is primarily from what I understand an internal body system, but I have all kinds of questions. I mean, the body doesn't exist outside of gravity. So there's a, there, there has to be some kind of a relationship as far as the movement of currents um, and it's, and how it's impacted by gravity outside of us. And I have so many questions too about just the fluid movement inside of our body and how oxygen travels on the blood, those pathways. I mean, there are all kinds of beautiful maps that intersect between Western and Eastern ideologies about the body, just in terms of where like the where the endocrine glands are that secrete our hormones and potential overlaps with descriptions of the chakras, for example, um, as well as Fritz has pointed out, um, Fritz is the zero balancing founder has pointed out that the places in the spine where the vertebrae change direction also correlate to locations of um, nerve plexes and endocrine glands and chakras. So this is, again, science overlapping with these descriptions that came from so long ago of just from humans actually experiencing what's going on in their body and being able to sense into it. So, yeah, I've always been fascinated too with, you know, what's considered an esoteric art, let's say astrology versus astronomy. And just recognizing that these forces that you said govern all of us, right? Like we're all subject to gravity, planets, entire solar systems are subject to these same forces and the way that it's a microcosm inside a macrocosm. And then let's say we have the microbiome, which is another whole huge, huge system that we're just now discovering so much about. And another fluid filtering system that I'm fascinated by is the lymphatic drainage system that we have, which also works alongside with gravity. And even our blood pressure is regulated by it and our the way our circulatory system works. So I, I believe, and I agree with you that there is so much crossover. It's just always been interesting to me, like how and why one is accepted and taught and then one is more like considered complementary and alternative and i do have the the same hope and outlook that they there will be more and more merging and one example is that now there's so much data showing how meditation is so beneficial right and so available to everybody and doesn't cost anything doesn't have any side effects um and even if it's placebo that's amazing you know tap into that so I, I'm hopeful too. And one last thing I kind of wanted to ask you about the somatic systems um, is the one system that I hear a lot of dancers use for their own body and healing, which could be also why you, you maybe got into this line of work is Feldenkrais 
method. And then also I, I hear a lot of people using chiropractors and I also used one during pregnancy. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on those. Hmm. I can't really, I can't really speak with any authority on either of those. I've had a little bit of exposure, exposure to Feldenkrais work. Um, and I know that Feldenkrais has methods for movement as well as for touch. And again, philosophically speaking, I've, I've read some of what Feldenkrais has written. There's a lot of overlap in terms of his work and the other modalities that I've already described. Um, you know, what I would say is a lot of these people who develop different somatic touch modalities share in common that they face some kind of an injury. This is true for Alexander technique as well. They faced some kind of an injury. And instead of going to the traditional format for healing or uh, rehabilitation for their injury, or because it failed them, the traditional format, instead they looked within, they slowed down, they felt what was going on in their bodies and they learned from their bodies about how to heal their injury. And then each of them came up with this specific technique that worked for them and applied it to the system of the whole body and kind of codified it. Right. So that's, that's what has happened basically with all of these people in different ways. Although I would say, I think Zero Balancing's story was a little bit different than that, but um, that has happened for, for many of these modalities. Chiropractics, um, you know, I, what I know from it, like it, I wouldn't call it somatic um, because, and please, again, I'm not an authority. I just feel like I need to say this. So this is just all me speaking to my understandings of these things. Chiropractics is kind of like a high velocity adjustment of the joints in the skeletal system. And um, I think that there are some chiropractors that work with energy as well, but some that are really purely structural. And why I would say it's not somatic is because I feel like the chiropractor is really just doing something. They see an imbalance and they're changing it, right? They're balancing it. Like this is, this is a, this side of the joint is compressed. This side of the joint is loose. One is sitting higher than the other. They make a change. Um, and that might be an overly, overly simplistic description. I apologize to all of the chiropractors out there listening, but the difference between that and the somatic approach is a somatic approach to therapy is not typically going to be the practitioner fixing the body of the person that they're working with. It's going to be the hands go on the body in order for the body to feel the imbalance that's existing and for the person's body in the biofeedback of feeling what's going on, choosing to make a change. And sometimes this happens, it's basically happening at the, at the level of the nervous system. So if the relationship between the practitioner and the person is trusting and safe enough so that they're in a state of being really relaxed, then their nervous system is available to respond in a new way. Their nervous system is available to learn something new. So if they couldn't feel what was going on in their body, but through the sensitive touch and handling skills of their practitioner, suddenly their nervous system becomes aware of something it wasn't aware of, it's going to choose to feel better. So I think that's something that all of these somatic modalities share in common is the sensitivity of the touch of the practitioner's hand, giving feedback to a body in order for that person's body to respond and in a way that's changing things, finding a new pattern, finding something that feels better. Yeah. Um, and there was something I wanted to say really quickly, Marina, in terms of this question of like allopathic medicine versus alternative approaches. And something I've learned to appreciate about 
the kind of like backwards pathway that I've taken where I've studied alternative modalities. And now I'm just coming into this clinical practice with mental health counseling is that I haven't, I didn't start with pathology. So all of my years of training were about the body's integration and health and organismic process-based functionality instead of looking at the body through a more mechanistic lens that focuses on pathology and what what's going wrong. So it has kind of grounded me in this question of looking for what's going right so that the body can support and inform itself as opposed to trying to fix what's going wrong and pathologizing processes that oftentimes are just communic bodies form of communication to get our attention so that we can work with it and support it better, support ourselves better. Um, so that's, that's also a place of where I think alternative approaches and allopathic medicine um, differ in their approach to um, wellness and well-being. Is how are we going to approach? Are we going to fix what's going wrong? Or are we going to support what's going right? That is such a powerful reframe. And everything you're sharing is parallel to my own inner healing work and how I'm working with clients and shifting to a more trauma-informed perspective and the holding space and really just knowing that healing, all healing happens in the parasympathetic state and encouraging that state with either touch or other modalities and even herbalism for me that really fills that void and that gap um, of understanding and witnessing that nature around us is moving slower and mm -hmm. not trying to compete with one another. Each flower is a unique, beautiful expression and blossoming at its own time. So really just looking to nature for these um, natural processes and accepting those same processes within us versus like aggressively pushing, um, just like you described, you know, somebody may not be ready for that therapy and you just make an adjustment and now the body has to like scale back and go the other way and like get adjusted to this new adjustment. So sometimes we just, you know, play volleyball trying to fix what's wrong and mm -hmm. throw the body into a trauma response, essentially. Yeah, and it's worth saying, I think that um, another reason alternative approaches have difficulty finding their way into um, biomedical institutions is that you can't just say, this is the protocol that works for this disease. Because as you just said, if we're talking about a disease, it's going to have a very different presentation and manifestation in any individual that it shows up in. And so a responsible alternative approach is going to look at all of the factors like biopsychosocial, spiritual, and all of what preceded the manifestation of this disease in order to know where it's coming from and how to treat it. Because treating it in one person is going to look different than treating it in another person. Um, so, so yeah, so that's another, <laughs> it's, and it's the slowing down that you talked about as a practitioner, you have to slow down to hear all of these different layers of what's going on with a person. And it's really hard to do that in a for-profit medical system. Yeah. You hit the nail on the head right there. And I have, you know, a million different questions about, you know, physical therapy and DO, Dr. Vastiapathy, and that fact that DOs now are equivalent to MDs is a sign of hope for me for, you know, the merging of the allopathic and the holistic, like we, we just mentioned, okay, there's so many differences, but, you know, at the end of the day, I do believe that in the heart of hearts, you know, all practitioners are trying to do the best for their patients. It's just a matter of were they indoctrinated into a system that is profit driven? You know, unfortunately, there's a lot of positives, right? We have great acute care versus, you know, do they study what you said, the underlying wellness mechanisms of the body, not just the sickness? 
Mm-hmm. All right. So without going into all of that, I would love to know what kind of uh, people come to you now. Um, something that you said reminded me of an article you wrote a while back about pain and how mm-hmm. we suppress pain. So could you talk a little bit, because I feel like a lot of people are struggling with this, you know, chronic fatigue, pain, um, all of these symptoms that they are taking pharmaceuticals for. So could you talk a bit about your perspective on pain? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I am, I can, and I'm going to try to, I heard also you asking me what kind of people come to me. So I'm going to try to interweave my answers. Um, I think pain is a signal from the body that wants to be listened to. It wants to be heard. It has a message that it's trying to communicate. And there are different messages that can be communicated. Um, but I think the most, I think that, that blog post I wrote a long time ago was just saying that, um, pain is painful. And so very often we don't want to feel it. And so the response is to suppress the pain, but often in suppressing the pain, it drives that message that was meant to be heard to another place in the body so that we can hear it. So it becomes this cyclical thing of ongoing or chronic pain. This is not, this is not like, I'm not, (laughs) I'm speaking metaphorically, right? So I, I am not trying to claim that I understand all of the mechanisms of chronic pain, but I can say that Suppression doesn't lead to resolution. Marina and I have been using, we've just been using this um, term process-based, right? Our organism, the human body as an organism is process-oriented. We are constantly in process. We are always growing. We are always changing. And we have so many parts of us that are in relationship in order to keep us alive. So the pain is often a signal that one of those relationships is awry. And in order to resolve that process, we need to listen to it so we can participate in it. And suppressing the pain doesn't do anything towards the resolution of that process. So I'm, I just am bringing up that question of if we suppress pain, are we actually moving the organism towards greater well-being and health? My inclination is to say no, (laughs) but you know, you need support in order to be able to feel pain and engage in a process that leads to resolution. And it's not easy to find support. So um, I want to draw the parallel. I want to draw a parallel here that leads me into talking about my work with infants, if that's all right with you, Marina. Yeah, so it makes me think of um, attachment theory, right? And how when children have uh, some kind of discomfort, infants, I'm talking about infants, discomfort or pain that they're expressing, the way the caregiver meets that signal of pain, the way they respond to that signal of pain is largely a determining factor in how that child is going to be in relationship to other people for the rest of their lives, right? So we're setting up these ways of responding to pain <clears throat> when, when babies are really, really young, right? If, if children cry out and they're ignored, they learn that ignoring their pain is safer in order to avoid the disappointment of not having their needs met. So that can result in in a way of responding to the physical body as as well as a way of relating to other people in our lives. Um, But so I, I bring that up to say that a lot of the people that I'm working with now are new parents and, um, I've been, I've been focusing my somatic training for the past four years in early infant movement development, which has a lot 
to do with interactions with the, the parents and the babies because the baby's movement development happens in the environment of the parents' support. So the way that they're responding to their cues, the environment that they provide for the child, as well as the specific handling that they do of the baby, that is like the literal environment for how the baby learns to move. <laughs> I just wanted to find a way there. <laughs> I love that. And I'm curious, so from your work with adults and your zero balancing techniques and touch how did that inform your decision to continue learning and now incorporating infant and parent work? And why did this become important to you? So once I was actively practicing zero balancing, um, I started to experience with a lot of my clients that they wanted movement practices to be able to work on the, sustaining the new patterns that they found at home. So just to empower them to have practices they could do at home. And while I had some tools and skills to do that as a dancer and as a Pilates instructor, I wanted to deepen that skill set for myself. And I also wanted to be able to provide that kind of information to people in group formats. So teaching. And as a dancer, I had done a lot of education, a lot of teaching movement. But I had kind of like veered off from that pathway when I became a practitioner. So that's part of what made me give myself permission to study the body-mind centering work because I thought, okay, this is going to invigorate my practice. It's going to give me more tools to work with my clients and it's going to get me working in um, a group format again, just teaching movement and teaching movement practices for self-care. Um, and that certification process in the body mind centering work, which is called a somatic movement educator certification, four of the courses in that training were developmental courses. So courses in which instead of learning just about the body systems that I talked about before, we were learning about actual human development. So reflexes, um, neurocellular patterns of movement um, in utero development. So we were learning all of these things. And through that process, we began to observe babies and observe babies' movements. And I just found it so fascinating. Um, there's so much to learn. This does connect into everything we've been talking about already. There's so much to learn from babies because there's so much going right with babies. And you can see the way more fluid movement patterns and structural integration through movement underlies our neuromuscular patterns that are more set as adults. So it kind of provides this um, inspiration in terms of ways in to work with adult bodies where you can get underneath the problems and connect with these more fluid patterns and support these more fluid patterns that underlie uh, more potential to change and find new ways of, of moving. Um, so that was, that was inspiring. Um, and then this whole other world opened up for me in terms of seeing new parents with their babies and realizing that there's just so much potential here in terms of supporting parents that um, don't have a lot of support in our culture, um, in terms of supporting them to really connect and bond with their infants in a way that creates just more deeply connected relationships. And Marina and I were talking earlier about um, so earlier this year, the U.S. Surgeon General issued a report um, saying that we in this country are in a crisis of loneliness and isolation. And one of the measures, the recommended measures for how do we address this is to cultivate a culture of connection. And so I've been seeing responses to this. Like just the other day, I read a newspaper article where they were talking about city planners building 15 minute cities so people can be closer to their friends. They can have more interaction with 
their friends. And that's amazing. I'm exciting that these ideas are circulating. But for me, that's like a reactive uh, fix for the problem. Like, how do we fix things now? And the infant work for me is just where all the light bulbs are going off because it's like, how do we cultivate a culture of connection from the very beginning, right? How do we create an environment that empowers parents to uh, bond with their children that allows babies development to be baby led so that it's not like hey baby we need you to be successful in this hyper capitalist world that we live in so we need you to do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and speed up their process but instead just like slow down and see what is my baby investigating and to recognize that this whole process of movement exploration that your child is going through is actually how they're building their nervous system. They're building their nervous system through movement and through relationship. So if we wanna cultivate a culture of connection, how do we support this process of development? We start from the very beginning. We prioritize the relationality the care, the community care that comes around caregivers too, so that it's not this isolated practice where parents are just holed up in their home alone without resources, trying to figure out how to do it perfectly. It's like, no, we have to weave this web of, reweave this web of interconnectedness and support each other. So that's personally why I'm really excited to do the infant work because I see a huge gap in support for parents and as someone who's not having children of my own, it was exciting for me to be like, oh, I actually do want to be involved in helping raise the next generation, but it's not by me producing a child. It's by me supporting other parents. Um, yeah, so that's, that's doing this work. Yeah, you came to me earlier this year to observe my child. And it was just such an, I don't know, uh, interesting practice, but also just allowing me to reflect on my parenting style and what I would like it to be. And that whole principle of allowing the baby to lead, right? Um sounds maybe a little bit foreign to some mm -hmm. but honestly the goal of parenting for me like what I'm realizing is to help my children become self-led and self-actualized individuals so that doesn't mean like there's some arbitrary mm -hmm. age you know when they're 18 or 21 that now they have the skills to be an adult and make it on their own <laughs> it means from the beginning, wiring them and programming them, because a lot of this is so subconscious, right? And that's why when we're adults, we're like, we don't even know where the trauma is coming from. But everybody on some level, you know, once you're, or even in the uterus, and definitely once you're out of the womb, you are subject to the environment, and you now have to react and be in relationship with your environment. And that just carries a risk of being hurt or things not going your way or not going toward your expectations. And so our job is to train ourselves and our children to react to that, to be able to handle their interactions with the environment. And that is going to have ups and downs, right? So just like being in this natural flux, like we said, instead of trying to like control and judge like, well, when did you start walking? When did you start talking? Like comparing the development of children and putting pressure on our children, you know, from the womb and, you know, when they came out during the due date or not, like all of these expectations on all these judgments that for the most parts, we don't even realize that we're putting it on ourselves as adults. And for the most part, we're more forgiving towards children because we don't expect as much out of a child as an adult. But even just seeing these nuances that we do sort of put certain kinds of pressures and, and judgments and parameters, um, you know, again, maybe from a place of the desire to make sure they're developing, quote unquote, correctly, um, 
that we want them to have the best life, you know, and for that, we think they need to like develop in XYZ manner. But this really just opened up the space for me to realize, well, what is important, right? And how can I support my baby in learning for herself, right? What she wants to do, what she's curious about, how does she like to be held that still allows her to move uh, freely versus like, you know, some restrictive ways of picking the baby up or, you know, being around the baby where you're pretty much do making all the decisions essentially and you're not allowing them to go in and interact and play because again you may want to protect them from um anything quote-unquote bad happening but i think there's a balance right and there's a balance of what you're going to teach your baby what you're going to allow the baby to do and i'm seeing a difference between like my firstborn and my second born <laughs> just by um, not only this experience, but in general, like, you know, a lot of new parents may be hyper vigilant, right, and and want to be like very helicopter parents, right, as they're called, and other parents might be more laid back. But with the second or, you know, after your firstborn, generally speaking, parents kind of feel more confident because this is not their first time. And so you get to see like the these differences, like my daughter, when learning to walk, she she's like, falling all over the place and she's like totally fine like we're not going <gasps> like every time she falls so she feels totally fine she's you know a lot of times our reaction is what they're now mirroring back to us so if we say like oh this is something to be scared about and to cry about you know then they're gonna feel upset that they fell but now I see her just walking around falling <laughs> you know and yeah it's amazing yeah and I think like in the in this specific work, the infant developmental movement education work, because new parents or when the baby is new, parents don't have a lot of brain space to be thinking about their parenting philosophy. It's kind of like we get to bring their attention back to actually the choices you're making right now can impact those long-term goals that you want for your child. Like you said, you really want to raise a self-actualized person and it's like okay so allowing your child to fall goes a long way towards that not freaking out when they fall because a child that learns that trial and error and failure is okay because it has it makes them come back to themselves and seek a new strategy is going to be a really resilient child so if resilience is something that you want to cultivate in your child, then you have to create an environment that lets them build resilience. And I think, you know, it's just not something that people realize, like I can start through an embodied interaction with my child cultivating these characteristics now, you know, I can start supporting these skills in my child now. And and it, I think it is important to, it, it's weird in the title, infant developmental movement education, a lot of people think like we're there maybe, or we're coming in to teach their babies to be great movers. And really it's, it's more education for the parents. How can you, the education is how can you support your child, give your child the support they need to figure it out on their, on their own so that they can be self-actualized instead of you doing it for them. How can you just make sure that you're, you're the support figure that you're giving them enough support and space so that they can figure it out on their own. That's often the question. And that's so, I, I don't know if you would agree from a holistic pharmacology perspective, but often for me, whether I'm working with adults or infants, the question is, what underlying support is needed here in order for, uh, for this issue to be resolved? How can I go back and go back and go back to find the underlying support that was missing? So that's, that's the question from the beginning. And how can you learn as a caregiver to give the child the support that they need? Um, and if you want to even like unite this theory with research, it's like, um, you know, if you, and 
there's so many things that parents do with their children's movement development that I think it's really important to say, it's not going to ruin your child. Like if you're doing something that another movement expert or person is recommending that's different from what they're recommending, you're not going to ruin your child. Like they're going to learn how to be a successful individual. But we're just suggesting ways that they can feel even more supported, even more supported so that instead of just learning how to cope without support, they have the support they need to find their most authentic strategies for meeting the circumstances they come up against in the world. So really, yeah, I love that you said self-actualized because I, I do think that that's a big part of what we're supporting is the self-actualization of the, of the infant, you know, not incentivizing them to meet certain milestones on a specific time frame, but instead just supporting their process, making sure, of course, that they're developing healthily, but healthy development doesn't happen on a specific time frame that is the same for every person. Everybody's different. So yeah, just helping educate the parents about these kinds of ideas and being able to be someone who brings into the environment like a, a, a regulating, calming presence that creates the space to even talk about these ideas. And I, and I do it with people in a really iterative fashion because so many new parents have said to me, like, I need to hear things seven times <laughs> before I can even think about uh, understanding because the brain is remodeling when you're a new parent, right? So, um, so yeah, just supporting that process of allowing development, supporting process. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to mirror back to you that everything you're sharing is like the sign of being a good coach or healer or anybody who holds space for other people. It's not about like, telling somebody what to do, like in a paternalistic model, but it's more of that making sure they have the systems of support in place, taking away blocks from them to take the action step, making mm -hmm. it less is more, right? Like giving them less things to do, but making sure that they have everything they need to do it. <laughs> Mm -hmm. so, and and having them be self-led and not just because you're telling them, you know, this this is what needs to be done. This will help you and, you know, solve all your problems. It's really about reflecting um, and asking what's important to them and getting to those layers of the motivation of what will pull them towards that goal versus needing to get pushed towards the goal they say they have. So it, it's a lot of, um, I feel like just space holding and, and creating that environment so that they can feel safe to, to lead mm -hmm. themselves essentially. So mm -hmm. I love that you're starting young and I do agree with you. There's just not enough support for new parents. And that's why pregnancy is also one of these areas where, you know, essentially this is where it starts. And even preconception, we could start some work around preconception so that, you know, both parents are healthy and, and well-resourced when they're going into conception, then supportive during pregnancy. And having that nine months is honestly a blessing because that's when you can start to create plans for what are you going to do when the baby actually comes. And I think a lot of times we just focus on, okay, you know, having a healthy baby, which is great. It should be a focus. However, how is the parent, the mother, especially going to be supported? Like there's a concept of the first 40 days or the fourth trimester after delivering the child where all the attention suddenly now goes to the child. And what about the mother? How is she going to recover? How is she going to resource enough to be able to raise this child and to give this child the support that we were just talking about? So and, and the community comes in, which you mentioned. So, you know, back in the in uh, in the day, we really did have a village, right? It took a village to raise a child, and people would help out. You know, your neighbors, your uh, family, and I think those resources are just not there because we are just doing the grind, right? We're going back to work. Sometimes mothers 
have three months or less to get back to work, um, which is ridiculous to me because, you know, it's it's so hard, especially after a firstborn, but even, you know, having multiple children, just that time frame is a non-realistic expectation from my perspective. Mm-hmm. And so you don't have the capability and the bandwidth. And like you said, the brain is remodeling. This is why we have pregnancy brain because your brain is actually remodeling a lot because it wants you to have the capacity of now having that attention and the love for your child. Mm -hmm. And every time you have a child, you have another, you know, remodeling where now you have different pathways of taking care of these children that you're birthing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can, it, it might sound funny to hear it this way, but it's like your brain as a new parent is growing another new brain, right? And, and I've been, this is just becoming, the more I work with very new parents, the more I'm realizing this question of, are you comfortable? Do you feel safe? What happened in your birthing experience? Was the baby in the NICU for a while afterwards? Have you self-regulated? Like all these questions about the baby's comfort and the baby's capacity to settle, for me, become a question of, are you settled? Are you comfortable? From what place are you trying to settle the baby and comfort the baby? Because so much of what the baby is doing is a direct reflection of their learning your nervous system state. They're reflecting you. So that's, it really becomes this co-regulating experience. And as you said, the mom really needs to be taken care of too. And there are questions about community, like how can community participate? How can there be other support figures in the family? Um, there's a lot of room for improvement in terms of the way we take care of birthing parents. And um, I, I had the I had the um, opportunity in my counseling education to work with six other students to create a, a group therapy format for parents dealing with postpartum depression. And that was our whole, thesis for our project. It's a, it was a, we wrote a 50 page paper about it and did a ton of research. And the whole idea is that we have to mend this relational web, right? So it becomes, um, it becomes the parent having the connection with the baby and with the family unit or whatever the community unit is that's right around them supporting that relationship. And then also knowing other new parents so that there's this web of connections and relatedness around this process of bringing new people into the world. Um, I think that's like the net of resilience that um, is going to provide the kind of care that people need. And I'm excited because I feel like this field of infant developmental movement education is ripe to provide that kind of support. Um, there's research that shows that postpartum depression, people's risk for postpartum depression and symptoms goes down significantly if they receive listening visits when they leave the hospital. So that could be from a mental health practitioner, but it doesn't even really have to be. They just need to be listened to. Their story has to be heard and received in a caring environment that's allowing the experience to just be okay. And the experience of not knowing, also, right, not knowing how to mother perfectly, allowing that to be okay as well. Yeah, there's there's a lot of room for support. <laughs> yeah, I think in an ideal world, I would want the mother just to have all the resources available to her as far as like running the rest of the household, whereas she could just focus on that baby mom connection bond breastfeeding you know and and just getting used to this new being um and taking care of this new being and 
not having to worry about anything but that, you know, just for the beginning couple of weeks at least, but ideally, you know, like the first 40 days and being nourished by nourishing foods and not depleting foods. And again, having that environment of safety and stability taken care of. Um, And yeah, and then just just leading, continuing to lead that way and, and having that support when baby reaches milestones. And like from my experience, going to the doctor and again, they're trained to see like what would could possibly go wrong. And it can freak you out because they're like, well, let's send to a specialist for that. Let's send to a lab for that. And this is an emergency and and all of this stuff. And it can be really worrying. And I've had a a few scares and, you know, I I see the value of both. You definitely want to make sure that there's nothing life-threatening or something dangerous going on. But at the same time, it um, sometimes could, a lot of the times, um, like a false positive so um so just taking it in grace and maybe having those conversations that you know this is probably nothing to worry about but we want to check this out and and having that language yeah and you know it's making me think about just maybe maybe this can help us just tie everything together the value of a somatic approach to this early relationship right because it's making me think of the difference between the word intervention and practice because if if people are looking at the infant and at the relationship between the caregiver and the infant and just prescribing interventions and interventions and interventions what's missing from that is the continuity of care that becomes this container within which the parent and the baby can find their rhythm and what works for them, right? Interventions don't feel like a ritual, don't feel like a practice. So yeah, I, 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 that's something I'm seeing. Um, that's something I'm seeing in terms of the benefits of the IDME work and a somatic approach to the infant caregiver early relationship is introducing that these different ways of interacting can become a practice and a ritual for the new parent and the baby. So eventually it becomes reflexive and they don't even have to think about it. It just becomes a part of the culture of their family, the doing these things that are supportive and the interacting in these ways, as opposed to, oh, something's going wrong. Let me intervene. I have to do this intervention. Um, so I do think that's that's a a particular value of bringing a somatic awareness to family relationships. Yeah. And what I love about this work is like you said, it's not just about solely helping the infant. It really affects the whole family and in a very proactive way, like you said, that will serve the whole family unit and system and maybe affect their whole lineage and future down the line. Because if the adult never got this work. Having a child gives you that second chance, that second breath of life to experience everything from early development because you're experiencing it alongside your child. That's what I'm finding. And tap into the playfulness, tap into the curiosity, tap into you know the positive emotions and the joy, tap into your inner child, essentially. So we, we talk a lot about that, but this is like a literal physical child living with you and then you get to invite your own inner child to also experience it alongside and fill in the gaps for yourself that maybe you never got a chance to yeah right with the idea of it being baby led how can we learn from them how can they teach us to heal the wounds you know that we didn't have met or the ways that we were parented maybe that didn't satisfy our our deep-seated emotional needs, how can we heal those wounds just by letting our our children show us the way? Yeah, that's beautiful, Marina. (laughs) Yeah, well, this was a really enlightening conversation and I hope our listeners got a lot. We covered a lot of different modalities. And if you have just one more minute, I'd love to do a rapid fire round with you. Okay. Okay, so what would be your number one advice for somebody to improve their quality of life right now? Take a moment 
of quiet self-connection in the morning before you start your day. Love that. Um, Second, what is maybe something surprising um, that you haven't shared today? Maybe a a hobby or how you spend your time? Ooh, um, surprising? Well, I, I like to sing and um, I like to sing and I used to play the piano. And so I sometimes use that as like a creative outlet to try to connect uh, with my emotional life and experience. I love it. And uh, what is your favorite self-care hack that you do for yourself to reset? Mm, sunshine. <laughs> yeah, just being in the sunshine. I like to get I should do it more often, but it's just like the sun is life giving for me. So I think getting some sunshine in the morning on a regular basis that I feel so much better when I do that. Yeah, so simple, but so profound. So Kara, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom with us. What's the best way to get in touch and to support your work? Oh, uh, thank you for asking. I think the best way to be in touch with me is to sign up for my newsletter. I don't oversend. I like to advertise that, but I do really try to put some valuable information every time I do put a newsletter together. So you can go to my website. It's caraligoriwellbeing.com and sign up for my newsletter on the homepage. Hey, great. So I will have that link in the show notes for everybody. And thank you again and enjoy the rest of your day, Kara. Thanks. You too, Marina. Thank you for tuning in to the Holistic Pharmacy Podcast. I truly hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed creating it. If you learned something new from it, I'd love if you could leave us a five-star review and share it with a friend who might love it too. You can find me on any of the podcast and social media platforms by looking up Holistic Pharmacist or Dr. Marina Booksov. Thank you for your support and see you next time.